You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. So today we're going to be continuing our series through Mark called King and Crown, where we analyze the life of life, uh, the life of Jesus, not the life of life, that'd be weird, the life of Jesus according to Mark, and what culture has to say about Jesus as our King. So today we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 28, so if you have your scriptures, you can go ahead and open up there. If you find yourself without a Bible this morning, that should be fine. There is a black Bible underneath a uh, seat somewhere around you. Um, And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us to you. So again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 28. And when you have gotten there, uh, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 28. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the uh, the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new and the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh uh, wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are are they doing uh, what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered into the house of God in the time of Abiathar, uh, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was uh, made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Good morning to you. I want to welcome you this morning to Providence. My name is Court, and I am one of the pastors here at the church. And if it is your first time, I want to say thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here, and we hope you enjoy yourself with us this morning. So like Scott said, we're continuing our work through the book of Mark, and I have two major passages to get through uh, this morning to finish out chapter two. Corey started last week. So before we jump into the text, though, I'd love to pray for us. And ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll do just that. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather, not merely to sing songs that honor you, but to submit ourselves to the truth of your word, to partake in your table with the confidence that the fellowship that you've provided by your blood is sure and secure despite our many faults, flaws, sins, and frailties. You welcome us today, and so we thank you for that, Jesus. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, that you would help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see, and fertile hearts that as the word is sown as a seed there, that it would find good soil and it would produce a 30, 60, 100-fold harvest. Whatever it is that you would have for us in your providence, we ask that it would produce that fruit in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So like I said, Corey kind of kicked off chapter two for us last week. I'm picking up where he left off, and there's two major stories here. Both of these stories 
have to do with the life and ministry of Jesus ultimately leading to a confrontation with not merely the Pharisees, but even the people who follow the Pharisees. And in particular, the argument is surrounding the Old Testament law, whether ceremonial or moral, Jesus in the way of his ministry was always going to lead to this confrontation. And so I want to kick us off by reading the first section. These are not unrelated passages, even though they happen seemingly on different days. I want to kick us off with the question of fasting that comes up to Jesus uh, as the people observe that his disciples don't fast, but the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees do fast. And their question is very, very simple. Why are your disciples ignoring this ceremonial law or this tradition? So let's pick it up. Let's read 18 through 22 once again. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, it's important for us to note what exactly is fasting. It's not as common at least not religiously so. It's not as common in our culture today. I know we just got out of January. Some of you may have already done a juice fast, okay, but probably for different reasons than the Pharisees. Um, and the fasting of this time in the first century would have been attached all the way back, not just to Jewish culture, but many ancient cultures, but Jewish culture in particular. Uh, and the Israelites were known to fast. They fasted for situations of mourning, particularly mourning and repentance of sin, they would fast for guidance, restricting and abstaining from food so that God would hear their prayers and that God might give them guidance on what they ought to do or what they ought not to do. And this is pretty regular. You can see this throughout the Old Testament that kings or leaders or priests would call for fasts. But if you actually look to the Old Testament law, there's not a single explicit requirement for fasting in the Old Testament law. And there's one implicit requirement, and that is on the Day of Atonement. The book of Leviticus says that the children of Israel should afflict themselves. This is interpreted this way both in the King James and the English Standard Version. But most commentators would say that this afflict themselves that God required of the children of Israel during the Day of Atonement was not that they would beat themselves up, okay? This is not personal flogging, uh, not cutting themselves as we know uh, the Baal worshipers did of the time, but that this kind of self-affliction was to abstain from food to abstain from eating for that day during the Day of Atonement. Now, because we don't have that explicit call, but we have that practice throughout the Old Testament, by nature what we know is that the Pharisees and the scribes had come in after the time of Ezra and, and ever since the time of Ezra and had begun to, to interpret the law and to basically begin traditions and laying out certain regulations as to when the children of Israel would fast and when they would not fast when they would have ceremonies, when they would not have ceremonies. Some were explicitly stated in the law, like the feasts, and some were not like the days of fasting. And so we find ourselves in this context with Jesus and his disciples not following the traditions of the Pharisees and the people to fast on the day they had been told. 
And Jesus is asked, why? Why, were you, why are you doing this? And you got to know his response, you know, it seems kind of tame because it's, uh, as Jesus often does, he gives a response that causes you to think it, there's analogies involved. And so it's easy to pass by and say, oh, well, that was not too harsh. But when you really think about his response boiled down, it's very direct. His response is, well, since I am the king and I'm the groom and I'm here, why would my disciples fast? They should be celebrating. That's why we're feasting. Now you got to think, the people would have been fasting and hungry. The Pharisees, the religious leaders would have been fasting and hungry. And we know based on Jesus' words that you would have known that they were fasting because they wouldn't have washed their face. They'd look all gloomy, ashes on their heads, making sure everybody knew it was fast day. John's disciples even would be fasting and Jesus' response to them as he is obviously not hungry, feasting with the disciples, having eat and drink, says, well, of course my disciples don't fast. I'm here. That would have been scandalizing enough. But then he goes on and he says, and of course, you don't take a new garment and tie it or sew it in with an old garment because then when it shrinks, the tear will be worse. You don't take new wine and pour it into old wineskins because it'll burst the wineskins and the new wine will be ruined. In other words, he says, not only are my disciples not going to fast while I'm here, but I'm not going to attach myself to your old forms because your old forms cannot contain the new covenant that I bring. So I'm not going to do what you have decided that I ought to do. In fact, I won't even attach myself with the ways of your elites. It's kind of an intense statement. Not kind of, it is an intense statement. (laughs) Jesus is unwilling to go along to get along. He's unwilling to simply fast when they tell him to fast. And would it have been sin for Jesus to have his disciples fast? Well, of course not. In fact, if we really read this as 21st century Christians, this passage is a case for us fasting, is it not? Jesus explicitly says, when the bridegroom goes away, then the people will fast. My people will fast. My disciples will fast. Well, guess who those people are? That's us. And the bridegroom has ascended and we await his coming. So in one sense, this is a encouragement of fasting. When Jesus calls us to. In this text, Jesus makes himself the arbiter of when his disciples will fast. And this is the big issue. And the reason it's the issue is we need to remind ourselves of who the Pharisees are. Now, the Pharisees aren't questioning Jesus, but never kid yourself. The people themselves are living in a culture predominantly shaped by the teachings of the Pharisees. They would never have this question if the Pharisees had not set fast days and feast days for them that they were to follow. And so the people are just questioning why it is that Jesus won't follow the narrative, why he won't follow the prescription. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to act as all the other rabbis acted. They wanted to treat Jesus just like they treated all the people and all the other rabbis who were under their authority. The Pharisees were the cultural and spiritual gatekeepers of Israel. They set the standards. They interpreted the scriptures. They interpreted the law. They were the judges of what was true and false, right and wrong, good and bad. They were the respected ones They held the authority and any rabbi who would reject their judgments on how to apply the law could not be tolerated. They would not allow this. It wasn't whether or not Jesus was right or wrong, whether it was permissible or impermissible. The question was whether or not he would go along with their prescriptions. And this was the issue. And the people were so used to following the Pharisees' prescriptions that even they were questioning it. Well, why didn't you just 
fast today? What's the big deal? Now, what does this tell us as Christians today? It tells us that the gospel of Jesus will inevitably cause us to diverge from cultural orthodoxy at some point. It doesn't mean that we diverge from cultural orthodoxy just for the sake of it. It means that because you're a follower of Christ, there will inevitably come a point where you will have to diverge from what the culture requires of you. Because just as Jesus told his disciples, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and unto God that which is God's, you may be able to pay taxes, Peter, for a while and it won't be an issue of sin. But one day Caesar will require you to bend the knee. And in that moment, you'll have to diverge because it's not to Caesar that belongs that glory, but to God alone. You see, Paul lived in the Roman Empire for a long time, but it always was going to end in a face-off with Caesar. His appeal to Caesar was because he knew that's where it would end anyway, because Caesar, at the end of the day, didn't care what God you worshiped as long as you were willing to say that that God was subservient to Caesar. And Paul did not agree. And here we find that the Pharisees don't care what kind of rabbi you are as long as your differences of theology are on the outskirts of the fringes and as long as you agree that they are the arbiter. As long as you agree that they get to make the rules on the big ideas of the day. There are still spiritual gatekeepers today. They're alive and well. We don't have a ton of time to go into them, but they usually take the form of the high office gatekeeper or the lowly minion gatekeeper that follows suit. These are the people who are constantly listening to your conversations to make sure that you uphold the approved narrative, the approved orthodoxy of the day. The things that you must say or the things that you must do, the things that you better never say and the things that you better never do. If you don't do things correctly, they will correct you. If you don't abide by the standard, they will hold you in contempt. And the punishment is typically not overt, it's covert, not explicit, but implicit. It's that now, once you've decided that you're not going to go along to get along, you're one of those people. Oh, you're one of those people. You are one of those heretics. Alienation, isolation, that's what you get. So it's not full beating, just you ain't hanging out with the in crowd. Jesus was willing to be set up as this man, not only willing, but it seems like he sought out these confrontations. I really enjoy watching the, the older uh, sitcoms, like the old 80s and 90s sitcoms. And I was, I've been watching Seinfeld again recently. And there's this famous Seinfeld episode where Kramer goes to a, uh, I think it's like a, a nonprofit like uh, benefit walk. I think it might be for HIV or something in New York. And he shows up to get his bib. And they say, here's your bib number. And they said, and here's the ribbon. And he says, well, what's the ribbon for? It says, what everybody has to wear. And he says, well, why do I have to wear it? Well, it's in support of the, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is. He says, well, that's why I'm here. I support it. But, but you have to wear the ribbon. He says, well, I don't want to wear the ribbon. He says, well, you will wear the ribbon. No, I, re- I refuse to wear the ribbon, right? And then here come two guys walking up behind him. And they said, what seems to be the problem? And he said, he doesn't want to wear the ribbon. And they say, well, why don't you want to wear the ribbon? He says, well, I'm here to support. Well, if you support, then wear the ribbon. But I don't want to wear the ribbon. The scene goes on and it's Kramer walking with everybody. And then more people in the crowd start to come up and says, why isn't he wearing the ribbon? says, I don't want to wear the ribbon. And they finally say, well, what are we going to do with this guy? He doesn't want to wear the ribbon. And the last line is something like, well, we'll have to teach him to wear the ribbon. And then they all start clobbering Kramer. You know, he's climbing up the fire escape and trying to get out of there. But he's like, I refuse to wear the ribbon. And it's hilarious. It's funny, but it's incisive. It's insightful about the culture. 
that there's always a group that has an approved orthodoxy that you have to wear the ribbon. You have to say the right things. You have to agree with what we've prescribed for you. And this is both within the church and without the church. It's, here's the reason why. Phariseeism is not a uniquely church, a church office or aspect. It was in the first century, but Phariseeism is about having an approved orthodoxy that must be scrutinized. It must be adhered to in order to maintain power. Okay, Pharisees happen to use the Torah, but they may use something new today. Pharisees make their way into every institution. You will follow the rules. And there are breakable rules that are bendable, but there's unbreakable rules. And one of the unbreakable rules of the Pharisee is that they get to make them. That's the one unbreakable rule, that we get to decide which rules are unbreakable. And Jesus wasn't interested. He challenges this idea. Notice he doesn't reject fasting as a principle or an institution. No, instead, he asserts himself as the Lord of the fast. He says, I have the authority with my disciples on when they fast and don't fast. And that was the issue. It wasn't a theological issue. The Pharisees would have loved to have discrepancies. It was that he said, I get to decide. I have the authority. Jesus is not a revolutionary in the common sense of the word. He's not casting off convention for convention's sake. No, Jesus is more like a reformer in the truest sense of the word. He calls God's children to reform to the truth of God's word, not reforming to Moses, but to Genesis. Reforming to who God truly is from the moment he spoke us into existence. He wants his disciples to see the vapidness of the Pharisees and to see a different way. The constant call of the Lord Jesus is the call of the prophets. Return to me, O Israel. Return to me. Reform back to me. Return to the truth of what it means to be the people of God, to the truth of God's word as it stands. And most importantly, do not submit yourselves to the yoke of man, but be servants of God. That's the call. So as Christians, we should ask, why do we do what we do? Why do we say the things that we say? Why do we willingly accept to go along with this group in word or in deed? And here's why that's an important question. It's because the validity of the Christian message is not found in its widespread acceptance. No, it is found in its incontrovertible truth that exists within it. In other words, Christianity is not true because we accept it to be true. Christianity is true because Christ is at the center and he is truth. Christianity would be true if we all rejected it. Or as C.S. Lewis said, you can no more diminish the light that comes from the sun by scribbling darkness on the inside of your cell. And a madman can't make the sun not shine just because he says it doesn't exist. Christianity is true, friends, not because there's consensus, but because there's Christ in the center. That's why it's true. And Jesus is setting himself up as the authority, the arbiter. He's saying, I have the authority to tell my disciples what's true about fasting or false, when they ought to fast and when not to. Listen to what Martin Luther says. The great reformer Martin Luther says, we must make a great difference between God's word and the word of man. A man's word is a little sound that flies into the air and soon vanishes. But the word of God is greater than heaven and earth, yea, greater than death and hell, for it forms part of the power of God and endures everlastingly. 
Now, he would have known something about conventions of man and the need to stand for God's word to be true. Now, I want to say this because it's important. It doesn't mean that there's no weight to any human traditions whatsoever. No. It means that traditions and human words only have weight on one condition, and that condition is this. Insofar as our words rely on and are grounded in the truth of God's word, then they have validity, then they have power. But the moment that man's words begin to rely on other men's words and other men's words, it's a Ponzi scheme of ideas that ultimately will fall unless it's rooted in God's word alone. Just as the moon is a darkened ball of dust unless the sun shines upon it, so the words of man are dried up drivel unless the word of God brings power. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says, the Pharisees, you walk around in your long robes and phylacteries and you look powerful, but you are not because you have long since detached yourself from the word of God and your traditions have nothing. Lastly, I think it's important to note the question of, to Jesus is, why don't you fast like all the others? But remember, friends, fasting is toward God, not man. The moment that we're fasting because we're all fasting, we've lost sight of what fasting is. Fasting is a posture of the heart toward God. And the moment it becomes a because we have decided to all do it, we fast toward each other. It's useless. It's a man-made institution. Okay, but what about the second passage? Because they're not disconnected. Let's start reading in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, this accusation against Jesus is an upping of the ante. In one sense, they're not merely talking about the ceremonial law of fasting, but they're talking about the fourth commandment, part of the moral law and saying that Jesus is breaking it. And if they can prove that Jesus is breaking the fourth commandment, they can discredit his ministry. This is the aim. Okay, And it's not just that the people are being sent as, as proxies for the Pharisees to question why he's doing what he's doing, but the Pharisees are confronting him directly. Now, this is a dangerous game because in one sense, of course, they can bring more force by saying, we're going to talk to Jesus one-on-one. But the downside is they're bringing credibility to Jesus by speaking with him in this way. And if they end up being on the wrong end of this conversation, it's only going to cut against them. Because now they confronted the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus made them look like fools. That's troublesome. So it's a risk they're taking, but they take it nonetheless. And as we know, the Sabbath law had to have many, many, many other regulations later written according to the scribes and according to the writers of the law. They were, there was much commentary about what it means to follow the Sabbath. This is true even today in Israel, and I think I've mentioned this before. They have what's called Sabbath elevators. A Sabbath elevator in Israel today is an elevator that you get into, and it stops at every floor because to push the button in the elevator on whatever flat you might be going to would be an act of work for an Orthodox Jew. So a Sabbath elevator is like that scene on Elf where Will Ferrell just does this in the Empire State Building. That's a Sabbath elevator, okay? Well, the Jews of this time had 
done painstaking work at trying to figure out what it would mean in particular to define the word work in the fourth commandment. When God said that you should honor the Sabbath and keep it holy for the Lord your God worked on six days and on the seventh day he rested. So you shall work six days and on the seventh you shall not work and your servant shall not work and your cattle shall not even labor and not even a sojourner within your gates should labor, but you should all rest from your labor. Their question was, well, what is labor? And what does it mean to work? And this is kind of understandable because human beings are, if you're a parent, you already know this, human beings are creative in their disobedience, okay? It starts at a very young age. We can all find ways to justify or skirt around the edge of the law. If you're a parent, maybe you say uh, on your way out, hey, I wanna make sure kids, you need to go to bed on time. And then the parents leave and it's just them and the babysitter and your kids say, well, what does on time mean? On whose time? You know, this it's creative, right? So you understand why the Pharisees might have done something like this. And yet, what happens here is that Jesus is accused that his disciples are working. And I need to be clear before we jump into the context and the real passage that Jesus refers to, but the accusation is because Jesus allowed his disciples to pick corn on their way ostensibly to the synagogue on Sabbath and eat the ears of corn because they were hungry, they had worked. They had performed work, which was unlawful for them. And the accusation was in so doing, Jesus had permitted them to break a holy law and commandment. Now it's interesting what Jesus does. Jesus responds, first of all, we should note, as he tends to do with the scriptures. And he responds with a particular scripture about King David when he was fleeing King Saul, after King Saul had been turned over to oppression by demonic spirits, and he basically had gone into a full uh, devolving. David, warned of Jonathan, Saul's son, flees and finds himself at a town called Nob. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want to read this because this story was particularly chosen by Jesus for a reason. First Samuel chapter number 21, I want to read this together. First Samuel 21, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered, David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave with the, with the holy bread, uh, gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it's taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. And then David said to Ahimelech, then, you have, not, uh, then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. 
And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Allah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Now, Jesus uses this story not only because he destroys their accusations with it, and he does, but also because he indicts the Pharisees' hypocrisy in this story, particularly with the characters involved. And this is very wise of Jesus because he doesn't do so in a way that all the people would have known they just got thrown under the bus. He does so in a way that only those two parties most likely would have known what he was saying because of the Pharisees' understanding of the scriptures and Jesus being a rabbi, his understanding of the scriptures. They most likely have memorized these texts. Anybody else would have said, oh, Jesus is basically saying that it's okay for him to do it because David did it. But that's the surface level. In this story, we see David running from Saul and he and his men find their way to the town of Nob. David pleads with Ahimelech, the priest, for food. He's hungry. Well, the priest has nothing to offer but the shoe bread, the bread of the presence. And it's unlawful for anyone to eat the bread of the presence but the priest. And yet, David and his men are permitted to eat it by the priest because he notices they are in dire need and hunger and he extends mercy to them. Now, this could be considered a breaking of the law, but what we know is that later Jesus will point out to us there are greater matters of the law, weightier matters of the law that supersede the lesser matters of the law and that the Pharisees were prone to focus on the lesser matters of the law and they would cast aside the greater weightier matters. They would focus on the tithing of dill, mint, and cumin in in their spice racks, but they weren't merciful. They weren't loving. They didn't care about the people. They ignored the most fundamental big rock matters of the law in order that they might police the minute ones. And here what we see is Ahimelech, the priest, doing the opposite, focusing on the bigger, weightier matters of the law, like loving David well in this moment, and in so doing, letting him eat at the bread of the presence. And Jesus is saying, and that's what I do. Now that's the first level. But I want you to see that when you tell stories like this, everybody tends to identify themselves as certain characters, right? Right? Like it's hard for you not not to watch a superhero movie and identify yourselves with one of the superheroes. You rarely identify yourselves with one of the villains and you rarely identify yourselves with one of the extras who gets blown to smithereens, you know? You're like, oh, that's, that's me. I'm that guy, you know, that just got run over by, I don't know, one of Captain America's motorcycles. Um, you're never that guy. The Pharisees in this story would have seen themselves as Ahimelech, the priest who guards the temple the priest who makes sure that no one breaks the laws, no one unholy eats the bread, the one who cares deeply about the things of God. And yet Jesus tells this story not to affirm that in them, not to encourage that in them, but to indict them. You are not like him. David is in this story given the bread and then what is he given? The sword of Goliath, the giant that he had slain in order to continue his flight from Saul. Meanwhile, there's another character that's mentioned, Doeg the Edomite. Now, you probably don't have any friends named Doeg, okay, for good reason. And honestly, there's like a, there's, this verse seems to be out of place in some ways. It's why is it there? Doeg the Edomite, who is watching closely 
will catch David. Now, why is this important? The Pharisees would have known this, even if the people listening wouldn't have known it. Later in 1 Samuel, Doeg the Edomite goes back to Saul. He tells Saul that I saw David and Ahimelech the priest betrayed you and helped David. And so the Saul with all of his men come back to Ahimelech the priest at Nob at the end of 1 Samuel and Saul, so angry that Ahimelech had helped David, he commands his men to kill the priests and all of the other priests there. None of the men would dare do it. But guess who would? Doeg, the Edomite. He slays over 80 priests and only one man gets away, Abiathar, the high priest, later of David's kingdom. Now, most of the people wouldn't have known this, but the Pharisees knew. Jesus tells this story and he equates the characters like this. Jesus is the greater David on a mission from God, the true king, chased around the countryside despite being innocent and with the sword in his hand to ultimately defeat the great giant of sin. The Pharisees would have thought themselves to be Ahimelech, but no, Jesus shows that he is the true Ahimelech. He's the better priest who offers mercy and care to his disciples, who lets them eat corn on the way to synagogue when they're starving, rather than telling them that they must faint along the way to be obedient to the ceremonial law. Jesus is the one who rightly interprets the law of God, that shows that the greater law should supersede the lesser to honor God by loving people. And then the disciples are David's men, hungry and loyal to the true king, fed by God as they follow him wherever he goes. But who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are Doeg the Edomite. That's the big idea. They are the false shepherds. It's not coincidental. It is integral to the story that the Bible tells us Doeg was the chief herdsman of Saul. Who was David? The herdsman of his father, Jesse. The true shepherd of Israel is what the Bible calls him. But this man, Doeg, is a false shepherd, a shepherd of the false king. He spends his time at the temple not gazing into the eyes of the king or gazing into the eyes of God, but he spends his time among God's people looking for an opportunity to accuse and destroy the rightful king. That's what he does. And Jesus says, I know that's who you are, Pharisees. You're like them. The law of God has been given to God's people as a gift that leads to life, not as a bludgeon that we ought to use to destroy and enslave. The law leads us to Christ because we cannot fulfill it, and Christ leads us to liberty. And when we come to Christ, we realize the fault is not in the law, it's in us. And then we see the law as beautiful only because Christ has saved us from the penalty of being breakers of it. The Pharisees seek only to exercise their power over the people and their false interpretations of God's law don't lead to joy, only lead to enslavement. The reason I say all of this is Christian, the way that we frame God's law in our minds tells us and tells others a lot about how we view God. Is he a good father or is he a tyrant judge? Does he love us and care for us and therefore give us the law or does he, is he interested in controlling us Is he interested in holding out on us? Do we believe the serpent or do we believe the father? If we think that the law is necessary, but ultimately it's cringeworthy, perhaps we are more like the Pharisees than we'd like to think. If we think the law is shameful, something to be shied away from, maybe we're more like the Pharisees than we think. If we think the law is not something to be adhered to, but the law is something for us to police everyone else's life with, perhaps we're more like the Pharisees than we'd like to believe. 
If we believe the law is mostly to be used as a sword in our hand against our brother rather than a mirror that shows us our need for Christ, perhaps we're more like the Pharisees than we'd be willing to admit. Now, the new covenant can't be understood except through the lens of the old. Jesus is not a God changing his stripes. Most certainly, this is a changing of the guard. The Pharisees are no longer the authority, but Christ. But friends, Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but instead to fulfill it. The law of God is to be only rightly understood through him. It is to only be rightly adhered to in him. All other methods of this of self-made righteousness is just vain idolatry. So I want to close with this. What should we do with something like this? Well, we want to guard against being like the Pharisees. That's the first. So it's easy for us to put ourselves back with the people and say, yeah, I hate it that the Pharisees keep trying to be authoritative over me. But remember, Pharisee is not something uh, back in the past that we can never be again. We have to guard against being Pharisees first. And then we should guard against what the Bible says, the leaven of the Pharisees, the teaching of the Pharisees, which has woven its way into every area of society, not merely the church. So I have three major things before we pray. The first, in a world of influencers, Christian, you are a follower of Christ. In a world of influencers, you are a follower of Christ. We live in a world with a constant barrage of people that seek your attention and to influence your decision-making in words. There are tribes everywhere, ideological subdivisions to join, groups to follow. In all of it, Christians stand out, as Jesus did in this passage, because we do not follow the zeitgeist. We do not follow the spirit of the age. We do not follow trends. We do not follow podcasters. We follow Christ. Or as Paul said, I follow Cephas. I follow Apollos. No, I follow Christ. Christ is king. And the great commandment given to us in a second that's like it is ordered for a reason. First, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And only in gazing into his eyes can we see both our deep need for forgiveness and his provision for that forgiveness. Our deep dissatisfactory living and God's welcome despite our dissatisfactory living. We look at Christ and we see both a broken, beaten Savior and the fact that those nail-scarred hands were for you and me. So as bad as the cross looks, we're reminded that he was willing to take that and it's sufficient for us. We sang it earlier, what Christ said on the cross, that it was finished is enough, but we have to gaze at that first before we look at our neighbor. And here's why. If we invert it and look to our neighbor first, you will look to God only to accuse your neighbor because what you'll find in your neighbor is problems. What you'll find in your neighbor is sin. What you'll find in your neighbor, even if you like them right now, maybe you've got a new you know, date, it's here or something, and you love them right now. Give it like 10 minutes, okay? What you'll find when you look to your neighbor is sin, and then you will look to God, and you will become like the serpent and accuser. Married couples, don't think you're immune from this. If you look first to your spouse, you will only find that which you do not like. First you look to God, and then when you look at your spouse, you will look at them with grace-filled eyes because it's the grace of Christ that you must have to gaze fully at him on the cross, Number two, in a world of approved narratives, we are disciples of Christ, pupils of Christ. In other words, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you desire his approval alone. Paul said, I am an apostle of Christ. I no longer desire man's approval anymore. 
When the world says you must say this, and the world says you must not say this, we don't just stand against them for the sake of standing against. Now I'm going to say it just because you told me I couldn't. No. Sometimes through consideration and prayer, you might say it or you might not say it. But at all times, we will say and we will do what Christ has called us to say and do because Christ is king. The issue is not merely being stubborn or hard-headed. No, the issue is to live in light of the kingship, the lordship, the majesty, the authority of Jesus alone. In Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, listen to how the apostles responded when they were commanded, you better not preach in that name again. This is the second time in the book of Acts, by the way. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. There's a double entendre there, by the way. They mean by guilt, and they, Paul would have probably thought, or Peter would have thought, yeah, I, am, well, I do want his blood to be on you. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witness to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. In a world of narratives, you are disciples of Jesus. Finally, number three, in a world of self-righteousness, you and I, brothers and sisters, are justified in Christ alone. In a world of self-righteousness, you are justified by Christ alone. It is not, as the first passage was teaching, what you must not say, what you must not do, what you must not eat, what you must not adhere to. It's not, as the second passage, the Pharisees, what you must do, what you must say, what you must adhere to, what you must agree with, the ribbon you must wear. When we add or subtract from the sufficiency of the cross of Christ, even if our attempt is to be better or good or more obedient, we are simply seeking to diminish the glory of God, which is a fool's errand. Only the cross of Christ is sufficient to make you righteous. Only the blood of Christ is sufficient to make you whole and holy. No Sabbath adherence can justify us before God. No amount of fasting can justify us before God. No righteous deed can be etched on our ledger that will move the needle a single iota apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. And praise be to God for it because it brings us singular in obedience. From all of the laws and all of the potential rights and wrongs, the Christian is brought to a singular method of obedience. And it is when Christ looks at us and says, follow me, how will we respond? Yes, Lord. Where you go, Peter says, I will go for only you have the words of life. Even if everybody else leaves and there'll only be 12 of us, the crowds leave, I'll follow you because there is no other king. I wanna leave you with Colossians chapter two, verses 16 through 19 before I pray. Through Paul's words to the church at Colossae, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or even a Sabbath. These are the shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind not holding fast to the head, that's Christ, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Let me pray for us.
Father, we ask now that you would set our gaze upon your son. Help us to hold fast to you, Lord Jesus, that we might grow in your image and likeness, to be conformed not to the pattern of the world, but to be conformed and transformed to your image, Lord Jesus. We thank you that despite all of our frailties, flaws, and sins, we have been justified by your grace as a gift. Thank you that the law is not a burden that indicts us any longer, but the law is a wise gift from a gracious king who has forgiven us. And I pray for any under the sound of my voice who have yet to receive that forgiveness by faith in the gospel, that they might find freedom in you this morning. We ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen.